Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Jason Miller. Jason is an American communications strategist and political advisor, best known as spokesman for former President Donald Trump. Jason has had a front row seat throughout the Trump administration, most notably in its consequential year 2020. In July 2021, Jason became the CEO of Getter, a new alt-tech social media platform. In part one of my conversation with Jason, we will discuss social media, big tech deplatforming, and Getter. And in part two of my conversation, we will take up the presidential election, the big lie, and the events of January 6th. Jason, welcome to That Said. Michael, good to be with you. So, Jason, I'd like to begin these conversations by asking my guests to tell us about their background. Yeah, absolutely. So like any uh, good conservative Republican, I grew up in suburban Seattle, uh, son of a welder, and my mother worked as a bookkeeper and a receptionist and a number of other um, jobs when she wasn't raising my little brother and I. And as I got a little bit older into high school or so, started to get interested in politics, um, then happened to be over at uh, the house of uh, one of the guys from the football team. And we're talking about the uh, the 1992 presidential election. And his father overheard us and said, well, if you're interested in politics, you got to go talk to my brother and his brother, uh, my friend's uncle happened to be the chairman of the local county party. So I went and talked with him, spent an hour with him. Uh, I'd obviously known his uh, his nephew from playing football since we were kids. And he said, well, you know, I'm good friends with a guy who's the state director for former U.S. Senator Slade Gorton from Washington State. So I uh, went and uh, drove downtown uh, into Seattle, sat down with him, said, I'm thinking about going to college in Washington, D.C. I'd love to intern or work on Capitol Hill, kind of the, the political bug. Uh, and he said, okay, well, uh, great. You know, uh, don't do anything first semester. Focus on your grades because, of course, that's what everyone does in the first semester of college. He said, come and find me second semester. And literally the day that I walk in to the office to go and follow up on an internship, uh, so this would have been then in the, the winter of 1994, was his first day being promoted as the chief of staff uh, for the, the senator. And so it just turned out that the same guy I'd met with uh, in Seattle had then moved to Washington, D.C., and he's like, oh, well, you're my guy. And so interned uh, for a semester, then worked for U.S. Senator Slade Gordon uh, in the mailroom, which I think I was the single worst mailroom employee in the history of the U.S. Senate. Um, I was pretty, I'm pretty terrible, uh, behind a desk or, uh, uh, doing data entry, uh, those types of things. But, uh, that was the beginning of a, a storied political career, uh, one, um, constituent response letter at a time. And, did you evolve from sort of being interested in policy stuff to communications, or did you always think, I want to be a talker? Uh, so uh, a great question. Initially, uh, went through, and I, I realized right away that the um, the U.S. Senate, uh, or even really Capitol Hill, was not my um, uh, my calling in life, so to speak. So as soon as I finished up undergrad, I um, moved out to California and worked for now Congressman Daryl Issa, <clears throat> who was running for the, the U.S. Senate back in, at that point, 1997. Uh, and as I went through, I ended up managing races for House and Senate and Governor, uh, was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. And then really where the, the shift over to the communication side began was in 2008, I worked for Rudy Giuliani on his presidential race, and I joined the communication shop. And so I really had kind of more of a uh, the executive role or the manager role. Uh, but then with uh, from Rudy's race, uh, started working a lot more with the National Press Corps, 
and then also then I went into the the advertising business, the political advertising business, did that for a long stretch, and that just continued to grow. And then uh, that kind of one thing led to another, and next thing you know, I end up with President Donald Trump in 2016. And was Trump your first choice? Did you start with the Trump campaign right at the outset, and was there like a transition between Rudy to uh, candidate Trump? Yeah, so I glossed over it a little bit. So in that stretch there between 2008 and then uh, 2016 when I joined up with President Trump, um, I co-owned a political advertising business called Jamestown Associates and uh, did a lot of upstart candidates, uh, uh, folks from uh, uh, Chris Christie, who definitely was a, an upstart in uh, in New Jersey, to uh, Richard Murdoch, who ran in the primary against uh, Dick Luger, uh, beat him in the primary, uh, became one of the go-tos for some of the conservative groups like the Club for Growth and Senate Conservatives Fund uh, helped to elect Matt Bevan uh, the first go around as governor of Kentucky, uh, which, by the way, we won the uh, we won the primary in that governor's race where I was creating his TV ads by 87. I believe it was 87 votes uh, statewide, uh, which is a that's you say it's a, a bit of a nail biter. Um, but actually, in 2011, at the beginning of that 2012 presidential cycle. Uh, I was slated to be Donald Trump's campaign manager if he ran for president. He ended up not running, obviously ended up not doing the job. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I didn't think that uh, that he was ever going to run. Um, I, I kind of read the uh, the 2011 conversations in interaction as a way to juice the apprentice contract <laughs> renego- <clears throat> renegotiation. So I didn't think that he would that he would ever run again. So I signed up with Ted Cruz, was with him in 2014, 2015, and round the corner in the beginning of 2016. Of course, President Trump jumped in, whooped everybody. Uh, but then after Ted dropped out about a month later, Jared Kushner called me and said, hey, President or then Mr. Trump uh, would like to see it. Can you get to New York? And we want to talk we talk with you about a role. One thing I always observed in watching you personally, I thought you should have been the communications director from day one. But one thing that I always uh, admired about you was your ability to stay on message as a communicator, not simply done these days. And I was wondering what that was like. I mean, Julie, Giuliani in post 9-11 was a very disciplined um, politician, a very disciplined candidate. Um, and, and then you move to uh, candidate Trump and, and then ultimately President Trump, who seems in some sense completely opposite of that, that discipline. So how, how, do you com- how do you compare and contrast and how do you develop a communication strategy for somebody who's as spontaneous as as uh, Mr. Trump. So uh, funny, uh, to that point, my first conversation with uh, uh, with Jared Kushner uh, for the in 2016 before I ended up coming on board, and we're talking through it, and, and he's telling me, look, the reason why we're bringing you on isn't because you have a lot of communications experience. The reason being is because you've able to adapt in working with larger-than-life personalities, whether it be Donald Trump, whether it be Ted Cruz, whether it be Rudy Giuliani, whether it be Mark Sanford, uh, whose race for governor I managed in 2006 and then was his um, deputy chief of staff, whether it be George Allen, who I'd worked with before that. Uh, so I'd worked with a, a number of larger-than-life personalities, and what Jared said was we want someone who can adapt because everyone who's come in here to work for Mr. Trump has tried to take a conventional approach. And I'm not hiring you because you've won all these races. The reason why I'm hiring you is because you've worked with all these personalities. You can figure out how to build something around their structure, around their 
their style uh, and try to succeed with it. And so it's uh, you have to you got to take your job seriously. You can't take yourself too seriously uh, some of these times. And one of the things with campaigns, much in the same way as startup world, uh, is about bringing uh, order and structure to chaos. And one of the things I've found just over the years, and I appreciate the the compliment on on uh, being the talking head on TV is uh, really your goal uh, really your goal when you're having one of these these uh, say interviews or when you and I would be on CNN or things like that is try to leave one lasting thought in people's head try to have one main takeaway no matter what else happens if there's a uh, you know a, a sick burn or maybe you know there's a tough question or something like that you want to leave that one thought in people's heads and so if you go in there and you, you do your prep, uh, that was always kind of my, my focus and goal when I would, would do interviews and such and try to stay focused. You can easily get distracted, but if you can bring some semblance of order to chaos, um, you know, just like in sports, the team with the fewest turnovers usually wins. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The problem, of course, is that in many sports there is a – playbook that the coach follows. And in, in the case of the president, former President Trump, there was in some sense no consistent playbook that you have so, to yeah. respond to, uh, you know, on the fly. So to that point, yeah, there, there are a number of funny stories on that. I remember once during the transition team in 2016 where I went to join uh, Chris Cuomo um, sitting on the uh, sitting in the chairs there on New Day. Um, this was uh, in the transition team and sitting down literally in, in the president knew he knew because I talked to him that morning, like I did before, you know, the, the crack of dawn or before dawn every day. Uh, he knew I was going on. He's like, so what are you doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm going to join Chris Cuomo. We're going to announce Tom Price is secretary of HHS. Um, be, he's like, oh, okay. About what time are you doing that? And then literally I'm sitting in the chair and the producer says to me, uh, President Trump just tweeted out um, uh, some pretty inflammatory rhetoric on flag burning. I uh, just want to make sure you're aware of that so you're not caught flat-footed. And uh, so then the conversation about Tom Price came about, the conversation about flag burning. I remember Chris Cuomo asked me, you know, Jason, you're here to announce Tom Price. And, you know, now the, uh, you know, the president-elect is tweeting about flag burning. I mean, what do you have to say about that? I remember just looking at Chris and, and I go, Chris, I mean, you oppose flag burning, don't you? Right. And Chris just kind of, uh, you know, he's kind of flummoxed and, and didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, I just laughed and, and just kind of laughed it off. And that's all kind of par for the course. But no, I mean, uh, look, with, with someone like President Trump, you have, you can't look at it through the traditional Washington lens. Um, and it takes uh, uh, a lot of time of work with somebody to get a sense of their voice or what direction they're going to go. But here's the other thing, too. It's a, it's a reminder that when you work for, when you work for someone who's the president or the former president, it's not your opinion that matters. Your job is to try to channel them. And that really comes best through just being in constant contact. And so I'd call the president. Um, usually, like I said, in the first campaign, usually at 630 every day. I let him sleep in an extra hour in the second campaign. I'd call him about 730 every day. Uh, but even as we went into the post-presidency, I usually wouldn't let go past 8 a.m. of getting his thoughts on the day, what he's thinking. Uh, because, again, it's uh, it's not my opinion. Uh, people would want to hear. They want to know what was going on with uh, with President Trump. In fact, I always felt during my tenure in the private sector that the CEOs that did the best were ones who had their communications director, the head of public relations, at the table with them. There was the CEO, COO, general counsel, and head of communications. And if those folks weren't all at the 7.30 a.m. meeting, the company was less likely to be as successful as if they weren't there. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a critical part. I mean, look, especially uh, with what I'm doing now with social media, as uh, I, I had a, a meeting with the, my team this morning and walked through exactly that and said, hey, guys, uh, this isn't, you know, uh, this isn't just about dealing with, uh, say, you know, big tech or the, you know, uh, the media. We have marketplace competitors. We have a lot of marketplace competitors. We have people, even though President Trump's not on the platform, we have a lot of people that put a big target on us uh, simply because I used to uh, be a uh, someone who worked for him or because there's the possibility in the future that he does join the platform, uh, although no uh, commitments made yet. But we got to be on top of it. This is a, you got to have your, uh, you got to have the proverbial head on a swivel. Uh, you got to be knowing what's going on and, uh, media cycles, uh, media cycles kill and you got to be able to move fast in response. Uh, otherwise it'll, it can impact market share pretty quick. So let's pivot over to you've left the president. Um, you stayed on for part of his post presidential tenure and now you've set up a new social media platform called Getter, G-E-T-T-R. Uh, I think it debuted on the 4th of July, right, of, yep. of this past year. So tell us about Getter, what your objectives are, why you established it, because it's an interesting concept. Yeah, so it's a, what Getter is, a brand-new social media platform at getter.com, G-E-T-T-R.com, or it's on the Apple uh, App Store or on Google Play. Uh, and we've uh, launched pretty quick, became the first ever social media platform to have a million users in only three days. So it was a, a pretty uh, pretty phenomenal launch. We're at about 2 million users now, with about half being in the U.S., half international. Then internationally, about 15% is Brazil, about 6 or 7% is Japan. Uh, so some uh, Canada then is number four. So it's a, a pretty, geographically speaking, pretty diverse platform. And really, the goal with it is we want to have a platform where uh, people support free speech and they oppose cancel culture. And really where this came from, is first of all, there's uh, it's been growing over the last year. In fact, I have an op-ed that's in the Washington Times this week saying that this is the single worst year for censorship in American history, and I firmly believe that. Whether it's the um, uh, some of the collusion that we saw between big tech and the media uh, with regard to silencing some political voices during the campaign last year, or even people who aren't political who've uh, questioned the way things were handled uh, with regard to COVID. So much of everything right now seems to be in this uh, this cancel culture. And what I mean by that is that if uh, there are people who are picking winners and losers uh, in opinions, in political opinions, in social commentary, and I'm not saying, uh, look, there's always aspects uh, of speech, for example, where you have to draw a line. I mean, typically, even Michael, you're the you're the genius lawyer. Um, I'm just one who plays one on TV. But your free speech rights, for the most part, extend to the point where they start to infringe on somebody else's free speech rights uh, or their safety and well-being. That's kind of the the very back of the napkin, thirty thousand foot, how you describe where the boundaries are. So the proverbial, you know, you can't walk into a theater and yell fire. If you walk into a restaurant and threaten someone physically, there are going to be uh, ramifications. The same thing in the digital town square, so to speak, that we don't want people to, we don't want people to, uh, again, uh, be threatening or abusive or uh, using uh, racist language or things like that. But when it comes to your political beliefs, when it comes to uh, your, your, how you think about elections or when it comes to issues, and it may even not be uh, electorally speaking, maybe it's uh, dealing with, say, a pop culture uh, type issue. You should be able to express yourself as long as you're not infringing on or uh, threatening harm to another individual. I think the difference is there's now 
political discrimination. I think in far too many cases where you have folks, whether it's big tech or the media, who decide to weigh winners and losers on opinions or to say we're going to completely silence or cut off or deplatform people. Case in point being the the Hunter Biden laptop scandal uh, just before the election last year. And that was one of the things that really stuck in my mind is saying we need new platform. Obviously, President Trump was then deplatformed after January 6th. Uh, and I was approached shortly after that about folks um, uh, who were starting up this idea, kind of this idea of getter. And so, uh, again, uh, had a couple month long um, courtship process and then ended up uh, making the decision to come on in June. So the terms of service of Getter that I looked at says that it will allow content that is offensive, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, pornographic, violent, harassing, threatening, abusive, illegal, or otherwise objectionable or inappropriate. That's your your terms of service, at least as I could read them online. And so you'll make evaluations like other platforms about what fits into those categories, right? Yeah, in, in the clear world, will not allow. So, for example, uh, just that I didn't hear the, the not word. And uh, uh, so, so for example, uh, we are uh, we do not allow uh, pornography on the site. We are not going to allow uh, people who are threatening violence or illegal activity. Uh, so we do have a proactive and a robust moderation plan. I think that's really what has set our platform. I think a couple of things have set us apart from other um, uh, uh, upstart uh, social media efforts. Number one. From the very beginning, I've, and I do believe the culture really comes from the top here, uh, that we were going to make sure this was a safe environment, environment for people to come to. And if we wanted to be able to defend people's political free speech and be able to fight to the absolute end that people would have a place where they're not going to be censored or deplatformed for their political beliefs, we have to make sure that it's safe. That's why I've said that I'm not going to put up with, I'm not going to have any tolerance for when it comes to, uh, racist or, um, uh, religious, uh, epithets, things like that. Uh, don't have don't have any tolerance for that and same thing with say doxing or threatening people uh so we've had that mindset since before we started and what we work with is work with both a an ai component artificial intelligence uh as well as a human component to make sure that we're and we're constantly going through and analyzing uh to make sure that um uh, to make sure that we we're calibrating just right you know we're not going to get it right every single time uh, but we're going to do our best so one of the things that actually had a, a call with my uh, ai team and with my human moderation team and this is the level of, of getting down to and we're going through images uh and we're uh there's somebody who is holding a sandwich uh as well as a, a butter knife uh, with a sandwich and initially had gotten flagged by the ai went to the human moderators they realized hey that's a butter knife so we went back through to say why was that flagged then we went through and started grading out okay and what uh, what instances say for example uh, with a knife would it be okay or not okay it's that clearly was not threatening harm why did it get flagged in the first place so we get really granular in these things and again the goal of that is to make sure that people can go out and say what they believe what they feel but as long as they're not threatening or harming or uh, infringing on somebody else's rights we want to make sure that they can say whatever they want to say right and the reason I asked the question and yes your terms of service says you will not allow you will be allowed small, to small difference small difference no no, no, no. I, I i thought i said it correctly but i'll say it again your terms of service allow you to remove content that is offensive obscene lewd lascivious filthy pornographic violent harassing threatening abusive illegal or otherwise objectionable or inappropriate so that's what your terms of service allow you to remove so the not allowing that stuff is exactly what I meant to say. But I I, I asked this question because I read something that I didn't quite understand. 
which is, uh, I think it was in an, on a Newsmax show, you said, you were talking about your moderation system, how you calibrate things. And I think you said in this Newsmax interview that you had, through the moderation system, identified, quote, left of center people to catch them and delete some of that content. Can we flesh this out? Because that seems at odds with the free marketplace of ideas that you've just outlined. Yeah, I, I think uh, there might be a little bit of a, a truncating some of the, the conversation there. I mean, to be clear, there's no uh, ideological requirement uh, to join uh, the site or to, to be a participant. Uh, and in fact, I always say that the only two things I ask is that A, you support free speech and B, you oppose cancel culture. And so on occasion, I'll repost somebody who's telling me how badly I suck uh, or, or how much they hate President Trump just to say, hey, guys, see, you can have all sorts of viewpoints on here. I think what um, what you might be referring to, Michael, is uh, a comment that I made with regard to how uh, there have been many um, uh, many left of center ideological folks, uh, particularly in the big big tech space, uh, have worked with the media to silence right of center voices, which I think is wrong. And to give folks who are listening, you know, Michael, uh, um, you know, you, you got a couple years on me, although I was uh, looking, you know, the, the whippersnappers in my office and tell them that, hey, over the course of American history, free speech, the free speech pendulum has swung back and forth. It wasn't that long ago, maybe, you know, decade or decade and a half ago, that a lot of the free speech debate was around gay rights or gay marriage. You go back a couple decades before that, and it's, again, women's rights um the uh the back in the the 60s and, and in the the early 70s and what i tell my democratic friends and yes i do have democratic friends um what i always tell them is hey don't uh, don't be piling on this cancel culture bandwagon because the pendulum will swing back and it won't be that long until you're rather than working with uh, the white house to say here's uh, what facebook posts will allow or not allow You'll be saying, wait a minute, what are these fascists doing working with these big tech companies to silence uh, our voices on the left? And what we want to have, again, I want people on the left, I want people on the right, and even beyond the U.S. I mean, think about this, Michael. Nobody wakes up in Brazil and says, I'm a Democrat or Republican. Nobody wakes up in Japan and says, I'm Labor or I'm Tory. People wake up and they have, they want to go about their lives. They want to interact with friends and family. They want to get news information. I want to make sure that we have voices from both sides. Look, a lot of the passion, a lot of the energy right now in the U.S. is on the right of center space. Uh, but we're actively working to try to bring left of center folks on as well. And their voices uh, are appreciated very much. So if I begin posting on Getter, my view that teaching critical race theory is critical to understanding systemic racism in America, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll probably uh, I might engage with you and say, uh, Michael, I think you're a great guy, but let me, let me explain to you why I disagree. Um, but no, I'd, I'd love to have it. In fact, any uh, friends and pro critical race theory uh, allies that you have, uh, welcome to join the site. This is, in fact, I even have handles set aside for uh, President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris. Now, do I think they're going to join anytime soon? Probably not. Uh, but we want the we want the big, broad marketplace of ideas. This is uh, this is uh, not some uh, Trojan horse type vehicle uh, to help the right. This is about making sure that we have a free speech platform because. Again, it might be the passion, the energy might be in the right of center space right now. It's not going to be that way forever. Historically, uh, you took us back to the 60s, but if you go back to, to World War I and the use of the Sedition Act, it was almost exclusively used against socialists who were trying to speak out against 
World War I's draft. So, Jason, you're absolutely right. The pendulum does swing both ways. But in respect of Getter, I do think as you grow, you're going to have enormous challenges to curate content and decide what is what is an acceptable organization and the content of an individual's communication. So you said, for example, that we will not tolerate racist epithets or other threatening language. But if you have an organization whose underpinnings are white nationalist, how do you distinguish the the one the use of a bad word versus an organization whose underpinnings are predicated on those beliefs. I think curating that. Yeah, is I, I think, uh, yeah. And I, th- I think the word, you know, really that, that moderation uh, word is, is kind of the, uh, the buzzword about this. And look, this, uh, you know, the, the whole aspect of um, where do free speech rights uh, ultimately begin to infringe on somebody else uh, is the issue that all platforms have had an issue with. And also too, uh, because you get so many, uh, so many posts and so many communications at one time, uh, even with the, um, uh, even with the AI component, excuse me, moving in, in, you know, uh, milliseconds or, you know, uh, you know, uh, fractions uh, of a second, there's still the issue of making sure that you're, that you're catching everything. Again, I think that the, there's a difference though between, um, uh, say for, you know, uh, people might, um, if people coming on as individuals, if, uh, say for example, people, uh, don't know who they are, um, and it's, uh, there's, everyone starts with essentially a blank slate, uh, with our site when it comes to, when it comes to individuals. Obviously, if there's a, uh, a group like the, uh, the clan, for example, um, where it's, uh, you know, or if, a uh, uh, you know, just an outright, uh, terrorist organization, you know, for example, I, I, uh, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be part of our community standards to have the, the clan have, uh, um, uh, have an account and it wouldn't be for ISIS itself uh, to have an account. Uh, and those, those groups are created purely to go and drive hate and to go and try to hurt and harm other people. That's, uh, that's, uh, their entire foundation is built on that. Uh, but as far as for, for individuals, um, if uh, nobody has, say, penalties or things like that starting off, so you start off at a point where uh, there may have been issues on some other platform, but as long as you're not posting anything uh, that violates our community standards uh, with our platform, uh, then we're not going to go and, and say, because some other uh, entity said that um, uh, that you're not going to be a part of them, that you're automatically, say, uh, uh, banned or censored uh, here. And obviously, if you violate the, the terms of service, um, then there might be a change to that. Uh, but I think there's a difference between individuals and groups that are that exist only to go and try to harm people. I think that's something that's different. And I guess that the thing I worry about for you, and I'm confident that you'll try your very best, that which I'm worried about for you when you say everyone comes with a blank slate. If a grand poobah of the Ku Klux Klan is a known entity to you, an individual, how does that individual come with a blank slate? 
Well, it's uh, when you're talking about a, uh, and again, if somebody's acting as a representative of a group, uh, whether it be uh, the Klan or ISIS or something like that, if you're acting as a representative of that group, uh, again, that's the, uh, you're putting the, the organization first there. And if it's an organization that exists uh, simply to do this, but, you know, if somebody uh, creates a, an account, um, uh, you know, uh, Steve Smith, you know, some, some generic name, uh, and they go and do it then, uh, and they're, they're not leading with the name of some, uh, some hate group, for example, or a terrorist group or, or anything in between. Uh, then obviously, like with any social media platform, you're not going to do a full, um, background check and ask them a whole set of, uh, questions before they're allowed to to go and join a platform, but uh, you know, like you said, this is uh, this is a challenge. I think that we, um, I think people who are joining our platform know that uh, that our philosophy is pretty sound, uh, and that is uh, we want people from all walks of life, we want people from all backgrounds. If you believe in free speech, if you oppose cancel culture, we want you to to join our platform. At the same time, we're going to make sure it's an environment where people feel safe and where they're not uh, not being threatened. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if you come on and, and uh, don't worry, Michael, you don't have to use your real name, but you say post something in, in support of critical race theory um, that people won't disagree with you. And they might uh, uh, they might be vocal in, in how they say that they think you have the absolute wrong opinion in such matters. Uh, but still, that that wouldn't uh, be permission for people to go and get any any sort of, uh, you know, threatening type conduct or, or things like that. And you know what? I don't think that would happen. I think what you'd probably get are probably some people who'd spend all 777 characters because you have longer posts on Getter uh, to go and explain why you're wrong. And, uh, and I, you know, and I, they'd probably be some pretty smart people and you'd recognize the error of your ways. We will see. The one thing, again, that causes me some sort of anxiety is when you say we oppose cancel culture, we see what's going on in, in many states where they are literally legislating prohibitions on teaching. I keep going back to critical race theory, but that's not the, the point here, but that they are legislating um, that which can be taught. That seems to me far worse than um, cancel culture, canceling of opinions that make them uncomfortable. I'm curious to know how you will deal with those who advocate prohibiting the teaching of, say, critical race theory legislatively um, while not allowing people who you call cancel culturists from being on? How, how are you going to reconcile those two things? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is, is uh, I'm not going to do anything on either front. If somebody is a pro-cancel culture person, Feel free to join the platform. Uh, I would say that uh, that it's probably not going to be in line with most of the people who do join the platform, um, who do support free speech and do oppose cancel culture, uh, whether they're in the U.S. or they're around the world. But if you uh, if you want to come on and say, hey, I, I think cancel culture is great. Um, uh, look, even, you know, Chrissy Teigen, if she wants to come and open an account on Getter, uh, we'll take her. Now she's being being canceled for, uh, for you know, uh, but she's she's welcome to create, create an account. Um, but, you know, just the same way that people who are advocating, say, uh, who are o- opposition to critical race theory um, uh, are obviously welcome to to join the platform. Uh, those are your political thoughts. And, and that's if you want to have those debates, 
notes. If you want to, if you want to hash it out, great. This is the platform for it. And uh, feel free to, to come and join. What we're not going to do is we're not going to go and play political censorship or political discrimination. So put our foot on, on the scale. So, right. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but so people on the left will not be deplatformed. Their, your moderation system will not remove them. No, no, no. They're, they're welcome to come on. And, uh, as I, as I said before, uh, I'll repost people, uh, who criticize me or say that they, they can't see in President Trump or things like that, just as a, a reminder that, yep, uh, you can have whatever belief you want here. Uh, if you're exercising your, your political beliefs, uh, does not mean that there's a, a particular ideology that you have to subscribe to or a particular, uh, political party or any of that. This is an open platform for anyone to share their, their political viewpoints and, and not even all politics. Maybe they just want, want to talk, connect with friends and family. Uh, they want to get breaking news alerts, different updates, things like that. Uh, but, uh, but Michael, this, this is the great thing about Getter is you can have whatever political philosophy or background that you want. And you're not, nobody's going to go shadow ban you. Nobody's going to go and say, Hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to hide this story or we're going to change the algorithms. Nobody ever hears anyone who's talking about, uh, about this certain position. Uh, there are no games like that. This is a platform for people to come and talk about what they believe in, where they know they don't have to worry about someone in, in, in coming in Bigfoot and I'm like that. Okay, we'll watch and see how it progresses. And um, if it is as you hope it to be, it'll be an interesting opportunity for there to be a marketplace of ideas, discussion about all manner of things. I'd like to stay on the topic of social media, but change gears a bit. The former president has sued Facebook and Twitter, saying that um, his being uh, removed violates his First Amendment rights. I don't I don't want to discuss whether he's legally got a leg to stand on. Um, I, I don't think he does. I don't think they're state actors. But I think that the lawsuit does raise, you know, a very highly important online free speech debate, which we've been talking about. Earlier, you referenced your August 10 op-ed. In it, you write, the past 12 months have been the worst year of censorship our nation has faced. With Silicon Valley's big tech oligarchs taking more liberties with our liberties, brazenly dictating what is acceptable to say and think. By no means is this the first time free speech has been challenged or threatened in our country, but never before has it happened so quickly, and never before has the media been a complicit partner in it all. And all this happened under the guise of removing and blocking so-called misinformation. So this is, to your view, censorship, plain, plain and simple. So, so let's just walk through this a little bit, because I, too, am worried about the power of the so-called social media monopolists telling the country what is acceptable information and what is not acceptable information. I do it from the standpoint of, I think the left has been suffering much more historically from that type of censorship than the right. Yeah. So, uh, look, if you take a look at this last year, again, going back to uh, the early days of, of COVID, and again, I'll, you know, one of my favorite uh, kind of uh, whipping posts here is, is Dr. Fauci. Uh, you know, in January of last year, uh, no, this isn't going to be that big of a deal as late as February 29th of 2020. Uh, you don't need to wear masks. Uh, things have changed. Things have shifted. But during, uh, you know, then you, you don't need to wear masks. They need one mask. They need to wear two masks. Then I think at one point it was like wear five masks, then went back to zero. Now it's one, but it's not two. 
so some of these things uh, kind of shift around a bit, and there are people who were, whether it be shadow banned or deplatformed or put in the penalty box by some of these social media companies because they dared to uh, question Dr. Fauci or to say something really uh, absolutely um, heretical, um, uh, like this uh, virus may have come from a lab in Wuhan. I mean, there were people who were shadow banned and deplatformed because they said that, well, now we go a year later and guess what? Uh, I'm not saying that it was a man-made weapon. I don't have any evidence to, to back that up. What I'm saying is it's pretty clear at this point uh, that the most likely scenario is that something got uh, traipsed out of uh, a lab in Wuhan or somebody was sick and went into a hospital and didn't know what had happened and inadvertently took it out. Bottom line is that COVID-19 most likely came from the lab in Wuhan. And I think that when we uh, when we rush to go and say that or whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, uh, well, we you can't talk about this. This might be Russian disinformation. So let's go and throw up the blockers and not allow uh, uh, the New York Post to share it or shut down the uh, the Trump campaign account, not let them to push the New York Post story about Hunter's laptop because, uh, oh, well, guess what? Actually, it turned out to be true, turned out to not be Russian disinformation. Uh, I do get concerned about the these political winners and losers under the guise of misinformation because I don't think that's what it is. I mean, again, this uh, this uh, when President Trump ultimately was kicked off of Twitter, it was because his final the the straw that broke the the uh, the camel's back was that he said he would not go to Joe Biden's inauguration. Uh, okay, I mean, you can have your opinion on that. Actually, I, I talked with the president about that even uh, even that morning, uh, and actually agreed with um, uh, agreed with him on that uh, on that position, and thought that was the, the smart angle to take. But there was nothing threatening or abusive or harmful. Here's and Michael's a little bit of a long wind up. What I want to get to is when we talk about Section 230 and the ability of these, uh, when I say these uh, social media companies. I'm obviously running a social media company. But if you're going to have protection for things that people say on your platform, then it literally is the digital town square. This is the the open environment where people can come and talk. Again, just as there are some uh, basic legal aspects about what you can and can't say or what you can and can't do in a town square, I think most reasonable people know kind of what those bright lines are. There are always going to be a couple of things around the edges that you're going to spend an inordinate amount of your time doing, and people want to push the envelope, and I, I get that. But there's a big difference between something that's threatening or abusive behavior and political speech. And I, my personal belief is that when companies move away from the uh, how do we uh, keep the conversation um, uh, as something that's inviting uh, and welcoming for everybody and then get into picking winners and losers based on uh, political censorship, that's where I think they have some real issues with Section 230. Um, my opinion of it is, and, and look, I, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how uh, successful President Trump's lawsuit is gonna, will be. Um, I'm just guessing the way the, the courts will go. They've already given pretty broad latitude to um, – uh, to uh, some of these uh, First Amendment rights. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, how successful he'll be, but I don't have confidence that ultimately Congress or the courts will be able to fix this. Uh, are there some antitrust issues with some of my marketplace competitors? Yes. Uh, are there some legal issues where I think they've probably gone a bit too far? And um, do I think that it, it, it's wrong to completely eliminate somebody's First Amendment right, which is effectively what they've colluded to do to President Trump? 
Absolutely. Um, but I, uh, I said, you know what, we can either sit around and whine about it, um, or, or we can take it to the Congress or the courts where it might take years, or we can go and start a new company and beat them at their own game. And so, uh, that's what I did, uh, helped to start Getter. Um, and we want to, we have a great looking platform and we're going to give people the alternative. It's a, it's the absolute free market approach. A couple of things. Not to defend Twitter's deep platforming of then President Trump, but they say his tweet calling the January 6th rioters patriots in combination with a second tweet saying he wouldn't be going to Biden's inauguration, taken in the context of all of the broader events, led to his removal because they feared it would likely incite future violence. Do you not credit their decision to apply their terms of service under these circumstances? I, that's obviously that's a, a much longer answer to get into, but I would say that the the, fi- the reason why I use the word final straw uh, was that uh, you know, I don't know how the straw that would break the camel's back would be. I'm not going to go to Joe Biden's inauguration, uh, which, by the way, Joe Biden wouldn't want uh, President Trump at his inauguration, uh, and so I, I thought that was a, a little bit ridiculous to say. Okay. You know, we've we've said before that we're we're not a fan of some of the things that you post, but you said you're not going to Joe Biden's inauguration. You've really done it, President Trump. I, I just thought that just that kind of showed the um, the insanity of some of the um, or the the inconsistent thought process that went into um, how they were picking winners and losers on on the free speech debate. Section two thirty for the listening audience is Section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act, which protects online intermediaries that host or republish speech like Getter or Facebook or Twitter against a range of lawsuits that would hold them responsible for what others say on the platform. So they're seen as sort of a switch. I post something on Getter or Facebook that says to the recipient that which they consider to be defamatory. They can sue me for that defamatory, allegedly defamatory statement. They can't sue Getter or Facebook. They're protected from the speech of others on their platform. That was built into that Communications Decency Act. The possibility of changing that, per what you were saying, to hold those platforms responsible for the content of the communications of people on the platform, I think is, from if I were a Getter board holder, I'd say, I, I want that protection. I don't want to see that changed. Yeah. So one thing I want, I want to jump in here because I am, um, uh, I am not the, uh, the absolute, we have to go and repeal, uh, section 230. Um, this and so, uh, just be clear my position on this. I do think though it has to be reformed because, uh, and keep in mind when, when this was written, when this was put together, we're basically talking about blogs. Uh, this, you know, back in the, uh, you know, back in the nineties, I mean, effectively talking about, you know, this, this was way before Facebook, way before Twitter. Uh, so we're, it, it's, is outdated, uh, is can be really. But when we talk about section 230, again, the goal of it was to make sure there was this, uh, I keep saying the digital town square, that's because that's where a lot of our, um, uh, you know, most of the folks who are ranting and raving, uh, on the, the actual town squares, uh, now are, you know, probably a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic. Uh, but where most people are taking the kind of the serious thought and conversation is into the online space. 
And I think that it's a, uh, that's what the goal of Section 230 is to make sure that people from various sides uh, could go and express themselves. Um, and uh, by hosting such a platform that you, you then wouldn't be liable. And then because uh, we want to make sure that the free speech was able to grow in, in the digital space. But I think once somebody hides behind that, but then decides to play pl- the political censorship game. And uh, look, I mean, just the fact that, uh, say, Jack Dorsey and Twitter had to come out and apologize uh, with what happened with the, the Hunter Biden laptop issue, uh, the fact that we've seen Facebook come out on a number of times and say we just got things wrong, uh, mistakes get made on this. But I think when it's a pure act of, um, uh, of uh, a partisan exertion of force, so to speak, then I think that's violating the spirit uh, of 230. And so I don't think it's a complete repeal. I think it's a rewrite to say uh, this does not mean um, that if you're going to, if we're going to give you these protections um, uh, to host such debate, uh, you can't go and just pick the winners and losers because you don't like their point of view. There's an interesting lawsuit that Republican Attorney General from Ohio. Dave Yost filed against Google, where he's asking that the court declare it to be a public utility, sort of a a telephone company or your town square. And he says that if it is so declared as a public utility, then they could not curate the content, as that would violate the laws that govern public utilities, railroads, telephone companies. I wonder if you take a look at that lawsuit, because it seems to me that there's something interesting in that concept. Yes, although uh, even uh, look, even as much frustration I've had with you know, say the uh, the Googles and the uh, the Facebooks uh, of the world, uh, there's always that line there of uh, to what point is someone someone basically just um, embracing capitalism and they're growing themselves a, a good company, but at what point uh, are they actually moving to uh, uh, moving to have a, a monopoly? I mean, we had some of these same conversations with Microsoft uh, going back to um, going back to the 90s, some of the late 90s conversations. And it's not always uh, the easiest decision on some of these. I do, anytime we start talking about something, I'm just kind of a, a skeptic on big government. I usually don't think the government is the solution uh, to uh, to most things. That's why when I when I kind of beat up on uh, Congress and say that, uh, uh, hey, we're all waiting for Congress to try to do something about free speech and, and big tech. I mean, keep in mind, a lot of these octogenarians, uh, they wouldn't know the difference between a truck and a tweet. Um, and so you're, you're telling me these guys are going to tell uh, the rest of the country or even the rest of the world how to um, how free speech in the, uh, uh, on the digital side is going to be. Um, so I do get worried when you say public utility. Um, that always kind of scares me. Like, you know, wait a minute. That seems like we're going to, uh, a little bit in the wrong direction of the government taking everything over. Uh, so that, that kind of gives me a little bit of a, a shiver up my spine. Uh, but I, I understand your broader point. The last question I want to ask you in this part of our conversation is that I was reading how Facebook and Twitter have automatic filtering and removal systems in place and that they partner through a nonprofit called the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism to remove extremist material. I was wondering what Getter's uh, approach to extremist uh, material publications on their website will be. Yeah, uh, great question. So we have, as I mentioned before, a two-pronged moderation system, both on an AI, artificial intelligence, that goes through both images as well as text. Uh, we also go through text within images, uh, which is something that we see pop up in particular with 
uh, and uh, a lot of folks speaking Arabic and uh, German, uh, where we've seen a number of images that, that have come through. So we monitor that. Then also we, we monitor the text as well. Um, and uh, I can't speak as granularly uh, with regard to how Facebook or Twitter, how they have their screens, but obviously they have uh, many of their own internal uh, screens that they do. But that that's something that we have um, and that we work uh, very diligently on to make sure that we prevent you've got to kind of bifurcate that from, say, some of the outside groups. Now, one of the things with the uh, the Politico story that was written a couple of weeks ago that took some criticism at Getter and said that we had had some of these in the, the very early days of the platform uh, that we were um, hit with some of these um, ISIS-type imagery, uh, some of these types of things, uh, which we've been able to go through and clear out. And by the way, uh, Twitter and Facebook and every social media platform has had challenges with this. Uh, literally, what they were saying as they were coming out together is, uh, we want to take away this platform from the um, uh, from the Americans, from the Trump supporters, uh, so let's go and post negative things on there to try to take away their platform. Uh, obviously, they're mad because President Trump wiped out the the caliphate and their lives have uh, uh, taken a significant step back because of that. The one thing, Michael, that I would say with regard to um, that political story, though, is what they didn't point out in the story is that the group that actually first brought it to Politico, which to their credit, they said, hey, uh, these are the guys who raised the issue with us. Who funds the group? Facebook, Google, YouTube. And so you go right down the line of marketplace competitors or other people in the social media space. And I think anytime you get to industry funded groups uh, and even the other group that you referenced, um, uh, the Global uh, Center on on Terrorism, which I had never heard before prior to that. I mean, we're very diligent, very serious about making sure that this is a, a safe platform. The third-party groups, uh, look, I've been around in Washington a long time. I've helped cook up a lot of third-party groups. Um, I've thrown money at third-party groups. Uh, you just you got to know that the way that Washington works with third-party groups is you cut a check, uh, and then you get a little bit of that, that good steal uh, of approval uh, housekeeping star uh, that you get to have. And things uh, just, just know that somebody is paying the bills for the third-party groups. We can have the exact same goals to make sure there's, there's none of this content that gets onto our site. And everyone should, should be pushing for those similar goals. But careful on the, the virtue signaling when it comes to third-party groups because you got to follow the money on those. It's a very interesting conversation that we've had, Jason. I'm interested to watch the growth of Getter. I am thinking very hard about whether I'm going to post something on uh, Getter and um, risk the, the, the trolling. And I'm also very interested to see how you're going to deal with what I think is going to be some of the hate speech that, that comes from many of these far-right or organizations who I think may gravitate uh, together. I think you've got your, uh, a job cut out for you to curate this you stuff. Know, I, will say, I will say, though, Michael, one of the funny things is it's, it's uh, well, funny slash ironic. Um, I probably get more criticism uh, from uh, the, the trolls who go on the platform and say, uh, why are you shutting down free speech? I can't believe you won't people, uh, won't let people have absolute anything that they want to say. I probably get more of that than anything else. Cause look, from day one, very beginning of this platform, I've said we're not going to put up, uh, with, uh, threatening or abusive type behavior. We're not going to put up with doxing. We're not going to put up with, uh, beheading or terrorist imagery. We're not going to put up with racial, uh, or religious epithets. That's not, uh, leadership comes from the top down. I'm not putting up with any of that, uh, on this platform. And, uh, and I think that, 
um, that uh, the, the users of this platform have done a very good job of making sure that they know what the uh, what the brand is, what the culture is. And that's, hey, you can come on and have your point of view wherever it is, but you know what? Uh, we're not going to have threatening behavior. That's This isn't the place for that. We'll see how it works out. It, it's very interesting. I'm excited for you um, as a First Amendment absolutist, more or less. I'm, I, I think that we find uh, a lot of common ground on the dangers of private sector censorship, but the devil will be in the details. And so we'll see. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us for this part of the interview. And I look forward to our part two later. All right. Thanks guys. Good to be with you. That said is produced by Compro and the museum of public relations theme music by Sam post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at that said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.